Hi, I'm Quinn Casey, and I am recording right now from Stevens Point, Wisconsin. And I'm Emily Vineski, and I'm recording now from Los Angeles, California. And we are recording and producing this podcast on December 18th, 2020. And that's what you missed on Glee. So let's talk about Glee. Yeah. Um, what is Glee, Emily? Please help me explain. So Glee is a... TV show created by Ryan Murphy and a few other very Hollywood uh, guys. And it was about a high school glee club, uh, which had a bunch of characters that they followed through high school and was extremely dramatic. And some people would even say campy, kind of think of any Ryan Murphy production. It was made in 2009 yeah. on Fox. And the main reason that we are talking about it um, in a political context is because it was so well known for having a lot of queer characters and following these queer plot lines at a time when that was not mainstream on television at all. What's interesting to us about Glee and sort of the portrayals of a lot of the characters on Glee is how they relate to homonormativity, which is this concept that was uh, first coined by Lisa Duggan. And it's basically um, this idea that queer people are made to fit into, or at least celebrated when they fit into expectations of heteronormative characters. So they aspire to be in committed relationships and get married, have kids. They dress and portray themselves as heterosexual and are basically homosexual in their relationships only. And this plays out in Glee a lot, but what we're also really interested in is, is how this concept relates to politics as well, because Throughout history, there's been sort of this uh, divide between assimilationist and radical approaches to LGBT politics, and homonormativity definitely plays a role in that as well. So the more radical queer political belief is that it's better to seek to restructure society so that it works for queer people rather than making people fit themselves into these societal constructs. And this played out a lot in the legalization of same-sex marriage in the US. Uh, a lot of people saw that as a huge victory but radicals thought it just like wasn't doing enough and was just trying to force LGBT people into the institution of marriage. And it also was asking to go further than just examining like marriage and things that people are comfortable with. It's going to gender identity, being able to like change your pronouns, being able to even identify as non-binary, um, all of these things that aren't really in the mainstream of queer politics. Obviously, like media has a huge effect on this because what you see represented in media will also appear uh, in politics. It's all about kind of what society is ready to accept and what they're ready to support becoming uh, legislation and becoming central to what politicians are pushing for. Absolutely. And I think like, that's the main divide in what is the mainstream LGBT political agenda now is this assimilationist approach because that's what has been more successful just because the goals are more about working within the system. The media like pushes this, we're just like you rhetoric and they try to normalize and like sanitize uh, what it means to be queer because they think that's gonna help them push the agenda. But a lot of people think it's really not. Yeah, yeah. We're seeing this a lot with way more queer media now where people 
really can critique new films and TV shows. Of course, when Glee came out, it was kind of the beginning of a lot of queer media um, in the early kind of 2010s. We wanted to talk to some scholars about this time and about the different politics that were coming through this time, the different um, representation and how Glee compared to them. We talked to Friedrich Dins, who uh, wrote this article that we read called Teenage Queerness Negotiating Heteronormativity and the Representation of Gay Teenagers in Glee. Yeah, my name is Friedrich Dins, but you can say Frederick. I'm a uh, yeah, professor at Ghent University, and I'm part of a program on film and television studies. And uh, Dr. Rafi Sarkeesian, who wrote Queering TV Conventions, LGBT Teen Narratives in Glee. I'm Dr. Rafi Sarkisian. Um, I teach at Christopher Newport University. And my general research interests have always been around sort of representation. Professor Danes had a lot of thoughts about Kurt and Blaine. The majority of his article focused on them. You have Kurt, who, when I was doing the study, uh, I kind of found him interesting because he's a complex character. As I stressed, on the one hand, he really represents the, the character who's victimized in the sense that he needs the other characters to help him to come to terms with his sexual identity. But at the same time, the way he performs his gender identity is so much more free, and he doesn't need anyone telling him that the way he, he performs his gender is, is okay or not, like he just is. But then you have uh, a character uh, like, like Blaine, but he's like what I call the homonormative gay teenager. Like, he's gay from the first moment we meet him and we, it's kind of established it's clear he doesn't do, need to do the whole coming out because he is just he's just gay it's like his sexuality is part of who he is but it's no like it's not turned into an issue they are they all seem to be on the same level on the other hand his gender performance his interests are still quite normative and that's where homonormativity comes in he kind of says that it's okay to be gay but what is implied is as long as you do a little bit of straight acting. So his gender performance, he totally fits in. Their relationship is still normative because it puts them into the feminine and masculine roles. And it effectively makes Kurt more homonormative in that way. There's several scenes like throughout the show where their relationship is shown, you know, on one side of the screen and on the other side is Finn and Rachel. You know, what I was kind of going after towards the end with my critique of Kurt and Blaine's relationship, right, is that they're kind of like held up as this sort of like model minority kind of thing, at least in the first few seasons. This kind of matching with uh, Finn and Rachel, I think they were going to have sex for the first time or something like that. And it was built up in the media that this was going to be sort of, you know, this this huge thing and how they represented it like that that episode was so very much like, you know, what's going on in Finn and Rachel's relationship and is mirrored kind of like in what's going on with Kurt and Blaine's. And so that is very much montage based, you know, like this is the equivalent, right? Or that's how I, that's how I would read it. So in that sense, you know, as much as I feel like Kurt's storyline and the very storylines Kurt is involved with um, does queer a lot of sort of uh, notions of gay seriality, right? That we haven't seen. Um, then it can also fall into these sort of very normative tropes. Of course, there are things outside of Kurt and Blaine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is interesting to look at how Kurt is the more feminine and Blaine is the more mainstream mm -hmm. man. And um, that's interesting. But uh, it's also really something that we didn't see explored a lot in scholarship, but that we wanted to concentrate on was uh, Brittany and Santana. 
yeah. uh, the two queer women that come up. Do you want to give a quick talk about Brittany? Because I feel like yeah, really I I think Brittany is such an interesting character, and they both mentioned it a little bit that she's essentially the queerest character on the show because she doesn't uh, seek to label herself. She's very fluid. She never has a big coming out moment. It's sort of just yes, this is who I'm with now, whatever. But actually, I found Brittany to be the most queer character in the show, exactly. even though she was so low key. But she doesn't self-identify. She doesn't care who she's with, and I think by, the thing is they focus so much on Santana's struggle with the closet and on Kurt's uh, struggle that we kind of missed out on, on Brittany being really actually the most innovative and queer, queer character in the show because she was just beyond labels. Well, not fully fleshed out because she was still treated as more of a secondary character, but who has the potential of being a queer character. She's very radical in that sense that she doesn't follow these sort of homonormative tropes of what a queer woman is. I think, yeah, the fact that, yeah, Brittany really kind of doesn't fit in sort of in almost any box. Um, and I don't mean that in just sexual orientation, but also just kind of like, you know, who is Brittany <laughs> really? What, you know, and there was like, uh, in, like, what does she serve on the show? What kind of character is she, you know? I think offers a lot of sort of ways to read a lot of things into and with Brittany. But she's so overlooked in academic literature about Glee, as is Santana. I mean, Santana follows a more traditional kind of media portrayal of a lesbian coming out narrative. Santana's, you know, storyline in terms of her sexual orientation does follow a little bit more of like the traditional coming out and like the the issues with family and coming out and stuff like that, like the, the familiar tropes, but because it's also stretched out and serialized um, so much. And also like, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where they got to at the end with Santana, right? In terms of sexual orientation, if, if it got labeled, right? As bi or as lesbian or as just, you know, queer. But I think allowing that space for also just figuring things out, right? And sort of what that entails um, is important. I think that they're both not covered as much because they also are treated. And of course, this is what happens when you have a narrative written primarily by a gay man, <laughs> uh, a narrative that kind of doesn't cover these queer characters as much. As much. Mm -hmm. Santana's on and off relationship with Brittany, right? I think is probably a richer exploration and, and sort of kind of like, you know, what is a queer relationship, especially or like, you know, even experimentation, you know, sexual fluidity and sort of ex exploration and figuring out and identity-based kind of narratives. I think there's a lot more to kind of explore. There's a scene, I forget if it's season three or four, but Finn basically outs her to the school and calls her a lesbian in front of everyone. And that was like the first time that that label had been used for her, I think, or at least publicly used for her. Yeah. Um, which is so different than like how they treated uh, Kurt's coming out arc when they were all so convinced that he was gay and basically trying to get him to confess to it versus their fear of sort of labeling Santana that way. Yeah. And how labeling her was like a big deal when Kurt mm -hmm. was like, oh, of course Kurt's gay. And also the fact that like no one ever had to label Britney. Again, something that's right. so weird. Um, She's so unique in that way. I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think someone said at one point that Britney at prom was like dancing with men, dancing with women. The prom episode showed a, a lot of promise when it came to, I think what Dr. Sarkeesian called queering spaces. Right. That's such an interesting thing I would love to talk about too, because obviously we're talking about how the media and Glee specifically influences politics and how 
we're sort of blaming it for homonormative uh, plot lines and trying to sort of normalize queerness. But at the same time, there's characters like Brittany and even the more normative characters like Kurt and Blaine sort of queer McKinley High by exposing the straight characters in the Glee Club to their lives and to their experiences. Having Kurt and many of the queer characters become such integral parts of this ensemble uh, and play such a crucial role in sort of the ongoing storyline. And that's one of the things that I thought was unique about Glee and that like, so it takes, you know, that kind of rip from the headlines that we saw the sort of It Gets Better videos circulating online at the time and gay bullying was such an issue right around the time of Glee's like sort of second season. And so they took that on, but they didn't take it on in sort of the usual after school special kind of, or wrapped up in a one episode, but in how sort of, how much they embedded that element. And so I think it's those elements where kind of like they take the characters that already exist and they queer the spaces, right? In ways, and when I say queer the space, I mean sort of like make room um, to sort of show the how queerness is a part of like the everyday, right? And even if you don't see it or if it's not explicitly addressed in every episode, when it does come up again later, it, it builds on sort of what came before, right? And so I think that um, was pretty unique at the time in terms of representations that we were getting. That serialization was really important to not only show like growth with the characters, but to see them growing alongside other heterosexual characters and to see that like all of this, these bits of growth and life are kind of like acceptable. They're not in a bubble. They're what most teenagers are going through with other teenagers. Politically, it's also like uh, encouraging coming out and how you can sort of queer the system or queer the political system in doing so. One thing that was really skipped over, neither um, of the scholars that we interviewed included this in their literature, but there are two trans characters in the show, um, Unique, who's a black student and Coach Beast, who um, is the football coach. I think that the way they are portrayed in the show, and this is like said a lot by the scholars we were talking to, is this mix on glee of stereotypes like really harmful stereotypes mm -hmm. being used um especially with unique's whole line and again this is reflecting things that were happening at the time like the bathroom laws and all of that mm -hmm. unique having all this trouble going figuring out where to go to the bathroom getting like attacked by men in the bathroom then she, you know she goes to the women's bathroom and everyone's so awful towards her there so it's like unique was really having this struggle and um I mean, became the butt of a lot of jokes. Uh, it's sort yeah, of I was gonna say, it's interesting to think about how differently they were treated by the writers. Like Unique as a black trans woman was really often ridiculed and joked about versus Coach Beast as an adult trans white man. Um, th their whole arc was about acceptance and everyone wholeheartedly supporting him in his transition. And it's just very interesting to think about how the writers in, shook different directions on those two trans narratives. Yeah, yeah. I think that it really reflected, because I think that Coach Beast came out after Unique, right? Yeah, I think, I think so. Like a, a season at least, or a few episodes later that that arc started happening. And I don't know why the writers decided to do that. I think it might be... I think there's a maybe aspect of intersectionality and womanhood that plays into it for sure. Oh yeah, for sure intersectional reasons and for sure maybe 
an idea of, oh, we played out this trope, this stereotype and made jokes about it. And now we have to actually treat it seriously. <laughs> right. And rather um, than just doing that to unique, they're like, let's make another character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Again, so many problems with Glee. It definitely was something to help discuss things like the bathroom bills and right after, you know, the show came out right after Prop 8. Um, so it was really able to discuss like political issues happening at that time. Did it do it in a way that was super clear? And, I think like, it's useful? easier for us now to look back and say, oh, it was problematic. But I think both scholars that we talked to pointed out how reflective it was of what was happening politically at the time. I think uh, it was also all in the post-Prop 8 moment, because I think when Prop 8 passed in California, so many people weren't expecting it to pass. And so it was after that moment, and it was the same time where Obama got elected, right? And you had kind of like the Prop 8 uh, musical on Funny or Die, right, that included a bunch of celebrities that came out right after Prop 8 passed that kind of showed this movement, right? So I actually do see 2008 and Prop 8 as this kind of like moment and glee and modern family and all these kinds of things then took advantage of that moment and became these larger cultural texts because they were on mainstream broadcast networks and had access to a lot more viewership. When you look at sort of where public opinion was when Glee came out and when Glee was happening, as Dr. Sarkeesian mentioned, uh, Prop 8 sort of launched this mainstreaming moment for um, portrayals of same-sex relationships in the media. And it's interesting, when I, I looked up some Pew Research stats on public opinion on same-sex marriage, even though, as we talked about, this is an assimilationist goal and in some ways not ultimately the most radical queer goal. It was sort of just the way that public opinion on LGBT rights was evaluated at the time. Anyway, um, so Glee came out in 2009 and public opinion in 2009, according to the Pew Research Center, um, there was a clear majority of people that still opposed same-sex marriage. It was 54% opposed it. By 2014, there's a significant change. That number sort of flip-flopped to now 57 supporting same-sex marriage. And this was a year, of course, before um, that was legalized in the United States and Glee had several episodes about their engagements and Santana and Brittany and Kurt and Blaine had a side-by-side -side wedding like together, which was just so ridiculous, but also like, of course they it did felt that, so though. straight, like, like it was oh. so homonormative, it's crazy, but. Two gays getting married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, anyway. It's interesting because that was all happening alongside these changes in public opinion. And it's like, can you attribute that change to Glee in its entirety? Obviously not, but it's interesting to see how Glee added more and more queer representation, queer narratives as public opinion was changing and how media and politics influence each other in that way. I do think it all sort of played a part in sort of the needle moving because, you know, the media, you know, it's not just a reflection, it also constructs the realities, you know, um, that we live. And so um, when you see things shifting, right, representations and meanings and uh, visibility, media making some of the meanings, right, the ideologies that we, um, that we hold or co-constructing in many ways. And I think, yeah, Glee was a big part of that. Right, yeah, I think it's really interesting too kind of chart that now that we have talked to Dr. Sarkeesian and we and we talked to um of course the Belgian perspective Friedrich, Friedrich. um this this idea of 2008 we have legalization in California of gay marriage 
And then that's around the time that a bunch of shows like Glee get greenlit, um, Glee, Modern Family. Um, and then suddenly off from that point, we have the It Gets Better campaign, which I think really chronicles season one and two yeah. with Kurt getting bullied and also his the person bullying him ending up like almost committing suicide because he was also gay. Um, Karofsky. Karofsky, yeah. Yeah, so there's that, there's that chronicalization. And then there's, oh, now we have the bathroom legislation. Like where do trans people go to the bathroom? <laughs> Which again, ridiculous. But um, that kind of crazy uproar during the Obama administration was happening right around Unique um, coming out and right around uh, when Beast is coming out, uh, mm -hmm. Coach Beast. So it's interesting to see that. And then also see, like you said, marriage legislation becoming larger and becoming, um, you know, the national decision right there <laughs> in 2015 is right when the show had all these gay marriages near the end of the show and then ended. Um, it really chronicled like a five, six year moment, six year moment when people were kind of talking about LGBTQ politics. And yes, it was like a more mainstream homonormative moment, but it, may it made space for politics today, I think. Absolutely, and I think you can see you know, whether it's harmful in its homonormativity or not, the sort of progression of the character arcs as uh, public opinion shifts. Like in the beginning, it's all these victim tropes and all of them struggling to come out and struggling to accept themselves, where at the end, it's more just, you know, where do we fit in in our career goals? What do we, you know, it's the narrative changes. I think that, of course, the homonormativity that's portrayed in Glee reflects and also is reflected in um, the homonormativity that's being forced into LGBT politics. They're interrelated, you can't separate the two. But Glee also did a lot to push these queer narratives, represent a variety of queer characters and kind of push this popular opinion in, in uh, politics through media, which a lot of shows are doing at the time, but Glee really stands out because of its, uh, its vast array of characters and storylines. From the, the outset, introducing not one, but two and three queer characters, um, and even giving them um, some kind of diversity between them in the sense that it's not all like copies of one another. I'd have to say that that makes space for debates we're having today about uh, protections for trans people. Wouldn't have been possible without something like Glee kind of creating an assimilationist path uh, through politics. So rather than demanding the most queer radical from the start, we kind of see it's being eroding from within. So we kind of seen if I would look, look what happened the last 15 years, I think looking at, okay, how can we uh, develop our laws or policies to be as inclusive as possible? And I think that's what is essential. How can we be as inclusive as possible and not just be happy with like, as you point out, the assimilationist politics, but I do believe that you need them. At the end of the day, that's what a lot of political discourse debates center around too, is that an assimilationist beginning is the road to radicalization and, you know, something like same-sex marriage would have seemed really radical at one point. You know, it's some degree of assimilation is part of radicalization. And I think that's ultimately something that we can appreciate out of Glee, regardless of whether you think the way that they portrayed the characters was harmful or not. It accomplished some shift in public perception of LGBT rights. And that's really amazing. Thanks, Samer, for a great semester. Thanks for listening.
This podcast was produced by Quinn Casey and Emily Vineski, edited by Emily Vineski, transcribed by Quinn Casey, and the cover art was by Emily Vineski. We reserve none of the rights to this music. Do, do, do.